If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The war between Russia and Ukraine continues. We wanted to take a look at the continuing conflict, what we have learned, what's been surprising, and what could happen in the future. Our guest is Dr. Melissa Checkers. She is a professor of history at St. Joseph's University. At this point, several months into this war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, kind of how would you portray this? I remember when this first started, a lot of people thought this was going to be over in a few days and there'd be a puppet government. We are well removed from that, but I also don't know what an end to this will look like. So how would you kind of characterize where we are right now? Yeah, I would say that we're sort of where we started, right? I mean, I remember on February 23rd, February 22nd, thinking that what's going to happen is Putin is going to demand that Donetsk and Luhansk either become independent countries, which is he's recognizing them at the moment as independent, or become part of Russia. Then we saw, of course, a full-scale invasion, the attempt to seize Kiev, the attempt to, you know, kill or capture Zelensky. None of that worked, which was a surprise uh, in many ways, but luckily did not happen. Now we're kind of back almost to where we started, where now Putin is saying, so on February 22nd, Russia recognized the People's Republic of Luhansk, the People's Republic of Donetsk, which are the two kind of major regions in the Donbass, eastern part of Ukraine that are controlled by Russian separatists. Putin recognized those as independent countries. And so he did that on February 22nd. So many people thought, okay, he's going to focus on the east. Then, of course, like I just said, he didn't. But now we're sort of back to the east again, right? where the focus is on these two spaces, but maybe as even a bigger space, including the entire region of the Donbass. The Russian military, there was a lot of talk about how big and powerful it was, and it has performed abysmally, it would seem, on, on most fronts. Are you surprised? Was it always kind of a secret that everybody knew that the Russian military was a lot of bark and very little bite? And I don't want to act like there hasn't been tragedy, there hasn't been destruction, but this conflict has just been littered of stories of Russian commanders, generals being killed, you know, people not following orders, not being able to move troops or equipment in the field. They've performed terribly, haven't they? Well, I think there's a few things. I think for one, Russia, if you look at it just on paper, Russia has the second biggest military in the world after the United States. It's an enormous military. But I think as you're saying, as you dig a little deeper, you learn a little bit more. So first of all, Russia relies a lot on conscription. All males age 18 to 24 have to serve one year in the military. So whereas the United States has a volunteer professional you know, set of soldiers, Russia has a lot of soldiers that just because you're 80, 18-year-old male, you have to serve. So those folks are a little bit less trained. They're a little bit less reliable. They haven't chosen that as a profession. And so I think what we're seeing a lot, a lot of the folks, some a lot of these poor young kids that are dying are 18-year-old kids who had no choice, who, who also were less exposed maybe to the world to understand that, you know, what that a lot of this is fueled by Putin's propaganda. You know, one of Russia's strengths has also always been its people. So it's always relied on social 
soldiers. It's always relied on ground troops, on tanks, on artillery. And it does still continue to have that strength. It doesn't have kind of the air capacity the United States has. So I think in some sense, that's also been a struggle for them. Lastly, I think what you were pointing about with mistakes on the ground is that Russia has continued to maintain, as the Soviet Union did, a very hierarchical set of commands, um, whereas, uh, you know, someone on the on the ground in the field experiencing something immediately who might have a little bit of a, a, a power position to, say, make some decisions to do X, Y or Z has to ask on up the chain. And so by the time it gets back to that person, that unit may have have been blown up or something. Right. So. So there, it's experienced a lot of problems. I think it's really exposed what people didn't know about Russia's military. On the other hand, the Ukrainian army obviously getting a ton of help from NATO, kind of a a wink wink coalition that is funneling arms to them. How much do you think is them performing above what people thought? Or maybe people didn't appreciate how good they were, because I know they've gotten a lot of training in the last decade. And how much of it is just uh, what they've been able to utilize from a weapon standpoint from all the allies? Yeah, I'd say it's both. I mean, I think it's equally both. I think if you look at Ukrainian soldiers, they have been fighting against Russia since 2014. There has been this, this it was called the Don, it's been called the Donbass War that has been going on since 2014. So they have a lot of soldiers who are battle ready, who have experienced actual fighting. On the other hand, I would say that, you know, there's no way they would have been able to do what they've done so far without the, the military aid that's been given to them. Biden just, uh, uh, I think yesterday announced that he was going to, or the day before, that he was going to give more artillery to to Ukraine. So the weaponry is really, really important. But I would say lastly, maybe just one other thing is that when one is attacked, one's passions to protect oneself and one's family and one's nation and one's land, of course, much stronger. Whereas opposed to the other side, right? Again, like I was saying, in Russia, they're trying to send a bunch of 18-year-old kids in who, who are from, you know, many of them safe as far away as Eastern Siberia, they, they're they not really interested in the fight. Do you think that the West, the U.S., NATO, if this turns into a slog that drags on many more months, maybe even years, do we see the same type of commitment? Because I remember the first couple of weeks, it was wall-to-wall coverage everywhere. You could not get away from it on cable news, the nightly news. That has retreated for the most part. I know that, as you pointed out, the U.S. and other countries are still funneling tons of packages to Ukraine. But is there concern as this drags on that countries, and I don't mean to be flippant, but start to lose interest and suddenly it's not politically as viable to send another billion dollars in X, Y and Z to Ukraine? Is that a concern? I think it's it's definitely a concern. I would say that, you know, a few things that are interesting about this war. One, you know, the way that it's playing out on social media, where in real time, one can just pick up their their phone and watch battles taking place over 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 Twitter. So there is a there's a different way that Ukrainians are connecting this war or even pe- Americans who have have joined the fight in Ukraine or American reporters who are reporting back to us in real time. So I think there's a certain amount of Americans that have been kind of glued to this in a way that we have 
haven't been in any previous conflict just because of the technology. There's satellite technology, there's drone technology, uh, and then of course the, the, the social media in our hands all the time. So I think there's a certain amount of, of, of way that this is, we're being reminded of this war more than in any kind of situation like this in the past. Um, at the same time, of course, there's always concern from certainly Ukraine that Americans are going to get tired of this. And, and we already have terrible things happening in our country right now, right? I mean, the shootings, the school killings in, in Texas have, have turned everyone's attention in that direction. So absolutely, there's some concern. I would say for the Europeans, for those who live on the edge of Russia, it's a little bit more, it's a little harder to forget because Russia is right there. And of course, Europeans rely, have relied so much on Russian oil and gas. So yesterday, the European Union decided to ban all oil and gas coming from Russia on tankers, but it's going to take a hit. Europeans are going to take a hit, and they already are. They already have been over this past spring, reducing their ability to have cheaper oil and gas. So I think it depends on where you are in terms of that picture. President Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, is a fascinating story. I mean, this was a guy who was an actor slash comedian who played a role of a guy who ends up president and wasn't expected. And now amazingly is the leader of the country and has taken on almost a mythic form. The leadership has been incredible. The way he has held allies feet to the fire, the inspirational videos. You, you talked about watching this in real time. The Ukrainians have won the social media space, I think, when it comes to showing their fight, inspiring people to believe and stuff like that. I don't know that anyone could have seen this coming out of President Zelensky. <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's it's really amazing. And I, I have to think that his acting training, right? He was a comedian. He was an actor. He was he, he you know, he's trained as this has given him actually the ability to do that. You know, and we and we think back even in U.S. history, right? Ronald Reagan was an actor. Many people said he was a great he was a great public speaker. So there is something to that. It does give you the training to be able to speak to public and to be able to know how to make your messages be received well, right? Um, and to be and be received in a way that people want to act upon those. So we know that in Ukraine, I mean, most Ukrainians every day listen to his message and rely on his message. And what's been kind of interesting is a lot of mayors of, of the towns that have been under siege, under attack, have copied him. And so now mayors and all these towns in Ukraine, they also have their social media message that they give every day to the cities, to the residents of each city. Like, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, this is where you can find water. This is what we're expecting in terms of the shelling. Try to, you know, get people to to be in communication with one another, but also to keep their hopes up. We need to take a break. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Melissa Chekars of St. Joseph's University right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. We are back talking with St. Joseph's University Professor of History, Dr. Melissa Chekars. We are all pretty well versed in Russian propaganda, and basically all media is state media in Russia. But it's been interesting. I have noticed, and this is just anecdotal, flipping through Twitter and people who study Russia and put stuff up, there seems like there's been some cracks on some of the state-run programs that are just, I mean, propaganda 101, but they'll have somebody who will actually talk about what's happening and give a clear-eyed assessment that it's not going well for Russia and the Ukrainians are fighting more than we thought. And 
I'm not talking guys that run out of the audience and say this. These are like people that are booked on these shows and they're not shouted down. This isn't an accident. What do you think's at play here? Is it just a way to relieve some pressure or, you know, is there more internal dissent than maybe we think, or is it, you know, too tough to tell? Well, I think in part it has to do with the casualties and it's really hard to know, right? So Ukraine says 30,000 Russian soldiers have died. Other reports give much less. But I think even British intelligence is saying around perhaps as many as 15,000 have died. So it's, it's, I think that in itself, it's just impossible not to answer that. And so there's these organizations of moms in Russia who have been gathering aid and sending it to the front, whether it's just, you know, uh, food or water. And so moms are beginning to hear from their sons that that Russia hasn't been supplying itself well. And I think that was one of the problems why Russia retreated to the east is it could have better supply chains. Russia is an enormous country. It has 11 time zones. So if you think all the way about in the Russian Far East on the Pacific Ocean, there have in the in uh, the, what's called Primorsky Cry, a region out there. There were five legislators of the of the local region who read in a legislative session, you know, how they are opposed to the war. And those people are actually members of the Russian Communist Party. So to think that the Communist Party is against this and outwardly against this is really interesting. So I think that it's it would be it's pretty difficult to keep a complete lid on this. You know, I mean, Russia has has done a pretty good job, but it's it, nevertheless, we live in an age where it's it, it is difficult not to to let some things through. And I think, again, Russia just being such a large country, it poses a lot of problems. As someone who does not study this, I have been kind of surprised that we haven't seen more of Vladimir Putin. I feel like every couple of weeks, some rumors bubble up that he's got a serious illness of some sort or, you know, is on the verge of being debilitated or something like that. Are you surprised we haven't seen more of him in public giving statements? And do you think there's anything to these reports slash rumors that bubble up, hit an apex every couple weeks and then go away? And then we get some version, some different version of the same idea a couple weeks later. Yeah, I'm, yeah. There's been a rumor that he has Parkinson's disease. There's a rumor that he has cancer. You know, there's a rumor that he has dementia. I agree. I, I, as far as I know, these are are rumors. We don't we don't know. One thing, you know, and again, back to the casualties is that Russia admitted, I think, in March that they had lost around 1,300 people. But they really haven't said anything after that. And then pretty recently, Putin did appear at a, at a military hospital in Russia where he was shaking hands with soldiers. And there was that moment to have a, you know, a, a photo op. But I mean, he's sort of re- I mean, he's a dictator in a sense. So he's not beholden to the people in the way, say, you know, a president of a democracy is. So he doesn't have to give the kind of public addresses that one would expect from from someone that 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 is elected. Right. So if, you know, the school shooting in Texas, we expect Biden to show up. He's got to go to Texas. He's got to lay down some flowers. He's got to talk to the American people about this tragedy. In a dictatorship, Putin's not beholden to the to the populace in the same way. So it's he he has disappeared in the past. This hasn't been he hasn't always been someone that's very that's been very public. So it's not, I think, that unnatural for him, but we'll see. I remember one of the things that everyone odd for obvious reasons was most concerned with was uh this escalating to the point of nukes being used, be it in a small version or God forbid, you know, the lid blows off this thing and everybody just starts firing at everybody. I don't feel that same. Once again, this is just as a layman. You don't get that same level of concern. It's almost like there's this uneasy, everybody, including Putin, kind of agrees that 
it's just going to be kind of conventional and stuff like that. Where are you just kind of on the level of concern of this turning nuclear? Have Has the concern pulled back for you? Is it still kind of nagging in the back for you? It has pulled back for me. I think that just the fact that Russia is now focused solely on the East, which again was where they were at the very beginning of this, right? Back in February 22, when, when Russia's, you know, recognizing the independence of these regions, there seemed to be back to that. So I hope we don't go in another direction. It does seem to be that Russia is, is consolidating its forces, but I think or in terms of an end game, that's going to make things really difficult. You know, nuclear war where uh, weapons might not be on the table at the moment, but I think some very serious things are. So for example, the um, thermobaric explosives that have been used, these are really terrible weapons that they drop and they sort of spit out firebombs and kill everybody sort of indiscriminately. They're able to, you know, shake the earth so much that a, that people in a basement can, the building can be toppled and destroyed. Um, so I think Russia has, has been using some weapons that create a lot of, you know, concern about how Russia has been treating Ukrainian civilians. I think we're not going down the road of nuclear war. I really hope so. I, don't, I think that has, we've turned, we've teams have turned away from that, but it doesn't mean that Russia is not going to be extremely destructive in Eastern Ukraine. Of course, we've already been seeing this where the idea is to completely bomb these cities to dust and then send in the tanks and, and the soldiers to completely take over the cities. But, but the civilians are who are really paying for this. It's interesting, you know, when the invasion began, there was all this concern of what the U.S. and NATO could and couldn't do because NATO couldn't get involved because that would escalate things. And it's just fascinating to me, just kind of as a person watching the White House sending out press releases about all the weapons they're they're sending and how big the aid packages are. And yet somehow we're kind of doing this wink, wink that NATO's not involved and I'm not complaining, but it, is this just kind of a dance that everybody does so that things don't get out of control that Russia acts like? I don't even know if acts like, but it's obvious who's arming the Ukrainians, but NATO and the U.S. quote unquote aren't involved. Yeah, it is really interesting. I, I agree with you. I mean, Biden just said that he's approved sending long range, multiple launch rocket systems. These are those are pretty serious weapons. Right. And those are specifically designed to help Ukraine uh, defend itself. I would say, in addition, Ukraine, we now see Ukrainian soldiers starting to do some counteroffensive attacks. Right. So in, in Harrison and elsewhere, Ukrainians are even going on the offensive, which I think if they're, you know, they're using weapons, as you said, from, from the United States, from NATO, and now taking offensive action, not just defensive action. I think that certainly looks like, like we're, we've, we've obviously chosen sides, but yeah, at the moment, it doesn't mean that the U S and NATO are in this war. It's, 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 you know, we're not sending soldiers. That's the key. What do you see as a possible end game here? We were talking earlier and talking off the air. It is kind of settled into this awful slog, but in the East, not the entire country. What is an end game here? I remember when we had our first conversation, we talked about possible off-ramps for Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think our first conversation was before the actual invasion happened, and he was kind of given all these opportunities to de-escalate and save face and didn't seem interested in any of them. You know, what does an end game here look like? 
I think it doesn't look well for the Donbass, for the Donbass region. I know that Zelensky and Ukrainian leaders are saying that no matter what, they're going to fight for Donbass and they want Donbass to remain a part of Ukraine. But I think that the fact that Putin and Russia had backed these separatists, that in April 2014, you know, Donetsk claimed to be its own people's republic, an independent country. Luhansk claimed to be its own people's republic, an independent country. These bases created little mini governments and they have their own, you know, they have a, they have a whole setup just ready to go. So I think what Putin wants to do, which is what he's done elsewhere, is to, as he already recognized those spaces as independent countries in February 2020, then he will, you know, hope take them over and then hold a referendum and those people will suddenly vote, not a very fair vote, but to join Russia. So I think at least those two regions, I have a hard time seeing Ukraine actually keeping those regions. Now, the Donbass is a much bigger region. So the other parts of the Donbass region, Ukraine may be able to keep, but I, I have a hard time seeing how it's going to be able to do that. I hate to say that because that's not what Ukraine wants and that's not what Ukraine is saying right now. Aside from, you know, all we've talked about with the war and the struggles the Russian military has had, it would seem to me that this has been a disaster on multiple fronts for Russia, economically, obviously sanctions, businesses, you know, companies pulling out. It seems like Russia was so concerned about NATO expansion. And here it seems like this, the war has pushed some countries towards NATO to ask for membership to NATO. That was not something that was really in the cards in January. Are you surprised on how many fronts this thing has just backfired on Russia? Yes, I th- I am actually. I think, you know, certainly Russia has has lost its European partners. NATO, you know, Finland and Sweden are determined now to join NATO and of course Turkey is 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 giving a little bit of resistance to that, but most analysts think that that Turkey will will make some concessions and and Finland and Sweden will get in. I think the EU making these this, you know, just having met yesterday and and claiming that they're no longer going to buy oil and gas as a whole that's those are pretty significant blows to to Russia so those are those things have really backfired i think though however china is still around um india is still around russia has friends elsewhere that could buy its oil and gas china has actually under its own media control has really pushed putin's propaganda and studies show a lot of chinese are are believing that that ukraine was filled with nazis and that that putin is doing the right thing we see that in places like India, people are debating this, you know, is Putin doing the right thing? Is Ukraine wrong? Is Ukraine right? So, you know, although in the United States, most people here are not following Putin's uh, propaganda blindly, we do see it effective, or in Europe, certainly, but we do see it effective in in other places. So it it remains to be seen what will happen in the future in terms of Russia's ability to, to make other economic agreements with other neighbors that will help to keep its economy afloat. It's interesting. I think recently, as we're talking, Ukraine actually put a Russian soldier on trial for war crimes. What do you think we will see on this front? I mean, obviously, awful things are happening, but it's got to be so incredibly difficult to investigate this type of stuff. How do you see that angle playing out? 
I think that's a really important angle moving forward. And while it's difficult to find out, to, to keep track of all of the evidence of this, Ukraine has made a very deliberate effort to do so. Um, Ukraine has phone numbers, websites that people on the ground can call and contact at any moment. They can take photographs, they can upload them. And Ukraine is keeping track of all of this. As you mentioned, Ukraine has already tried one soldier for war crimes, and they have given him a life sentence. They are currently trying two other soldiers for war crimes. And I think that there is a lot of evidence to try someone for war crimes. What's a little bit going to be a little bit tougher is genocide. So Ukraine is claiming right now that Russia is carrying out a genocide against Ukraine. And the genocide was a term that was coined by Raphael Lemkin in World War II. But the United Nations has a genocide convention that basically any member of the United Nations is beholden to. So if it is determined that a country is, that someone, a perpetrator is carrying out genocide, the United Nations believes that and the United Nations needs to take an act on that. So that I think will be a little bit more challenging for Ukraine, but it does have some, there are some patterns here I think that we can look to, to see that Russia is deliberately wiping out Ukrainian civilians. So they are using, they are bombing indiscriminately, or sometimes they are targeting things like schools and hospitals, health centers, evacuation routes, targeting civilians. There have been many reports of rape and sometimes even reports where women are raped by a group of soldiers who tell them that they are they are raping them to the point where they will be in so much physical pain that they will never be able to have children and they will never produce Ukrainian children. We know that Russia has taken populations and transferred populations from Ukraine to Russia. These are specific items that are listed by the United Nations as counting as acts of genocide. So I think the more that this takes place, the more that Ukraine categorizes all of this, I think we're going to see a lot a lot of of, uh, this carrying out in courts. So for example, the world court at the United Nations, the European courts, I think we'll see more of this in the future. And I talked about earlier what the end game is. I know people in your position don't like to speculate, but do you think we are talking about something that will drag out for months? Are we talking about something that we could push into years? Is it possible this is one of those things that we never really get a, maybe the shooting stops, but there's never really a an end per se. It just maybe they just stop fighting and it's always just kind of hanging there. What do you think? I think that's a possibility. So for example, Russia does that a lot where it it messes up borders. So for example, in Georgia in 2008, right? Um, it makes it really messy. Now Georgia can't, you know, it, its borders are not secure. And then it sort of pulls out and stops, like you said, the, the shooting. So I think that could absolutely happen in Ukraine, but it is definitely not in Ukraine's interest. They've implied to join the EU. I mean, if that continues, you know, that path continues, it's going to take them 15, 20 years probably to get to the European Union. It's a really complicated and long process. But you can't join the European Union if you don't have secure borders. So Ukraine is going to want a better end game to this. And Russia is going to want a really messy end game to this. So it's going to be difficult in terms of, of, I think, war crimes. We're going to see this last for a very long time. Those kinds of trials can take a very long time. And and I think it's going to be years from now. And not just, I think, the, the crimes in terms of human loss of human life, but also of the physical destruction. So Russia has targeted churches. It's targeted, you know, cultural pieces of important cultural, physical heritage. There have been reports of Russia, uh, tr- Russian troops walking into museums and stealing artifacts from Ukrainian history museums, those kinds of things. It's, it's going to be a long, this is a long process to, to rebuild and to categorize all of the terrible things that have happened. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. 
You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.